Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. A selfie launched a thousand comments about race and gender. A new poll considers the possible Trump embarrassment factor. And is anyone surprised the Hartford ballpark is running behind schedule? Today in the Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable, we will consider those stories and remind state workers that no matter how unproductive tomorrow afternoon at 3 o'clock is going to be, you'd still better be at work. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. You can comment on our website, WNPR.org slash Where We Live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Also, coming up later... Hey! Happy Festivus, everyone! We'll celebrate Festivus by airing our grievances from 2015. Uh, first, I want to welcome in our guests. As usual, our panelist is Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Hello once again, Colin. Good morning, Mr. Dankowski. Also with us is Mark Pazniok, because he is the Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mayor. Hello, Paz. Good morning. And Susan Bigelow is here. She's a columnist for ctnewsjunkie.com. Hello once again, Susan. Good morning. So yesterday, Stag Firearms pleaded guilty to violating the Gun Control Act in federal court. The new Britain-based company failed to, and this is in quotes, adequately document some guns. Here's Daniel Kumar from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. When a firearms licensee is not able to provide those records to us, it puts law enforcement behind the eight ball. So when we're talking about public safety, being able to track and identify sources of crime guns, that makes our job that much more difficult. What they're talking about there is guns without serial numbers on them, unregistered machine guns. Uh, The president of Stag uh, will sell the company, get out of the business and have to pay a fine of $100,000. Colin, this is kind of a big deal, and, and this isn't the first time we've talked about Stag firearms either. No, so Stag failed to endear itself to many people in Connecticut in 2013 when, in response to the law passed after Sandy Hook, they put out a special Connecticut edition of, the, of their AR-15, uh, an assault rifle which basically could m- fall below the scope uh, of the new assault rifle law in Connecticut by changing the caliber to 22. So kind of an indication that they weren't always interested in being what we might think of anyway as a good citizen. Um, here, it, it looks, and, and I know Paz has followed this story and has been out there and stuff like that, and he, uh, he and I talked to the elevator on the way up. I mean, it seems as though the federal government is buying the stupid as opposed to criminal uh, argument about all this. I mean, the level of sloppiness here is just off the charts. Some of their explanations, this all dates back to um, a series of visits by the ATF in 2014. Some of their explanations are borderline comical. Like at one point, you know, they have these 3,000 so-called receivers, gun people call them lowers, their lower part of a machine gun, but it's where the serial number goes. And one of their explanations at the time was that the person who puts the serial numbers on was on vacation. Um, but they came back a week later and still didn't have the serial numbers on. So, I mean, it wasn't as if the ATF – I mean, there's going to be a narrative within the, the, the pro-gun um, community that this is the intrusive federal government being real jerks and, you know, trying to deprive people of their Second Amendment rights. Nothing could be further from the truth. It does look as though – I mean, there are very clear laws. If you're in this business, you know what the laws are. It's like the, it's the first thing you know is what the laws are, what you're required to do, 
they're, they're, the laws are very clear, and they just seem to have no interest in following them. Uh, Colin says maybe the ATF buying the stupid uh, arguments as opposed to the really criminally negligent ar- arguments. Paz, what do you see here? Well, this ended up in in federal court because there was a previous instance that went back even further. So, you know, you don't get three bites at the apple on this stuff. The ATF, as it should, takes the documentation aspects of firearm control laws very seriously. And this company inexplicably, um, you know, botched it in many, many ways. Um, I will admit I was surprised. I've, uh, I've, I've met and interviewed Mark Malkowski, the founder and owner of the company, uh, several times. He had a great local story. Um, he's the son of a, of a guy who had a tool and die business. Uh, he was a hobbyist. He developed a gun that was suitable for lefties, uh, a version of the AR-15. He built it it's from left-handed li- people as opposed to liberals. We should be clear about <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> Thank you for clearing that up, Colin. It's not like Bernie Sanders owns one. No, it's like exactly. <laughs> All right, I'm done. <laughs> no, so, yeah. But anyway, you know, it, it 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 was this great local New Britain story, and then of course Sandy Hook happened. Um, their sales initially spiked, as, as always happens after these with a lot tragedies. of gun makers. Yes, with a lot of gun makers. Um, you know, I mean, Colin viewed what they did uh, to their product line is is uh, thumbing their nose uh, at Connecticut. Their view was they adopted to the new rules and regulations, as did several other gun makers nationally. There are Connecticut legal AR-15s. There are New York legal AR-15s. The opponents of of gun control, at least as it applies to banning specific firearms, point to these developments as evidence of how difficult it is to ban specific firearms as opposed to focusing on things like background checks, universal background checks, which even among gun owners, uh, there's a new poll out today, have strong support. I, I will say, Susan, I talked to Governor Malloy about this issue clearly a number of times between uh, the events of Sandy Hook and now. And one of the things that he was criticized a little bit for was his kind of unwavering stance on gun makers in Connecticut. He was essentially saying, look, we're going to do anything we can do to keep all sorts of businesses here in Connecticut. We don't want businesses to leave. But when it came to gun makers, he really didn't want to hear it. And he really didn't want to sit down with gun makers and talk with them about the work that they do and the business they do. I can only imagine that after what happened yesterday, Governor Malloy is sort of sitting there going, yeah, well, didn't sit and talk to that guy. Didn't seem like he was really playing by the rules. No, it's absolutely true. And certainly this guy and a lot of others made a lot of noise about moving, going somewhere else. And it's true. Governor Malloy didn't seem to care all that much. Uh, to Colin's point earlier about the narrative going around about this, I was actually checking out a lot of the sort of pro-gun websites this morning. It's really interesting because that narrative is not appearing as much as I thought it would. That there, A lot of the, the reaction, at least initially, seems to be, well, they they were really sloppy. They didn't follow the rules. And cer- certainly they're saying, well, sure, the federal government's a hypocrite and this awful law and blah, blah, blah. But I don't see a lot of, oh, no, the government's coming to take our guns kind of thing. They seem like it's just very sloppy. Yeah, I, 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 I look at some fr- of the same sites. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to say, I did not see the phrase jackbooted thugs once. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it, well, it's oh, out yeah. there. It, it's out there. But I agree. I looked at some yeah. of the same sites, particularly the ones that really sort of 
are there are some sites that have a high level of familiarity with the whole manufacturer question and, and what the rules are. And I just want to clarify one thing that I said. It's not that the government doesn't perceive this as a criminal matter. There's already been one felony count issued and now another misdemeanor count issued. Uh, and in fact, yeah, as we were saying, the voiding of their license. I mean, this is being taken very seriously by the federal government. But the penalties which exist for these same offenses are much higher. I mean, in other words, the kinds of penalties that were available to the federal government if they believed there was something aggressive about this. And, and by the way, how they don't believe that some of these things are aggressive, like the machine guns with the serial numbers filed off, uh, I, I don't know. But uh, they seem to, anyway, be acting more like this is negligence as opposed to something much worse. And I think that it's part of a, a conversation that's come up again uh, once again after the events out in San Bernardino. You know, this sort of question about about high powered weaponry ending up in the wrong hands and, and how it is manufactured legally in places and how it ends up in the hands of everything from domestic terrorists to uh, people who have allegiances to ISIS. And I, I don't know, Colin, if it stirs up this sort of conversation once again about how we make guns and how we keep track of the guns that we make. But it seems as though this sort of sloppy record keeping, and maybe this is why a lot of the pro-gun lobby is kind of distancing themselves from, from stag arms right now, it sounds as though this might raise a big conversation once again in America about how we keep track of the guns we make. Yeah, and maybe that's the better point to make about the difference between how this being, is being perceived by two different camps. Uh, because, in fact, yes, on a lot of the pro-gun sites that Susan and Paz and I have all, all looked at, there are a lot of people saying, well, they were really stupid and they weren't following the rules and they should, they're licensees, they should know this and all this kind of stuff. But there's also an undercurrent like 200 unaccounted for firearms is just – that's just stuff happens, you know. I mean, if you're that, that could just be a bookkeeping problem, or well, that's a lot of guns. I mean, I think to the rest of us, it's a lot really because the argument really is that we have enough gun laws in place, and the argument that gets made is we have enough gun laws in place to take care of this kind of problem. But if a manufacturer can't account for 200 weapons. Uh, to me, that's not just a, a, an issue of a decimal point being moved to the wrong place. I mean, that's a serious concern. It ought to be a serious concern. And I do see that being minimized in some of the conversation coming from the other side. The families of, of the 14, uh, 14 of the people who were killed at Sandy Hook and two people injured won a lawsuit against the state, state of Nancy Lanza this week, the mother of the Sandy Hook shooter. They'll split the homeowner's insurance coverage on the lands of home, which CT News Junkie reports is something like $1.5 million. And this is something that's been out there for a while, Paz. There are a few different lawsuits still stemming from the events of Sandy Hook. This seems like, in, in probably a small way, a, a small victory for some of those families. Yeah, this is a small victory, and this was something that I, I was anticipated. There was, there was really no defense, I think, that the lands estate even put up uh, you know it was the only, that was the only asset the the value of the house was was underwater there's there's nothing else in the estate so this was this was certainly low hanging fruit you're going to grab the homeowner's policy and there did not seem to be serious opposition the more complicated lawsuits have to do with litigation filed against some gun manufacturers uh, trying to attach liability. And, of course, the history of that type of litigation in this country has not been terribly successful. It's not been terribly successful. I guess not to read too much into the first story that we talked through, though, I, I guess I just wonder what the, the various types of liability a gun manufacturer might have in a case like this. Because I, I think when we all saw it, we were, we were a little dubious about how far that lawsuit was going to go. 
against the gun makers. Again, the, the history has, has not been good. Congress has been hostile regarding how liability laws are written. I am not uh, expert. I have not done deep reporting in this, but but I am generally aware that the, ter- the legal terrain in this area is very hostile to uh, the plaintiff's bar. It's, it's sort of sad, though, that this is sort of the only avenue that families and advocates have at this point to try and get something just even a little bit to budge on this as they have to go through the courts and try the litigation option because it doesn't doesn't seem to matter what happens out there, how horrific things can get, that Congress and will just never move. It, it'll be interesting to watch the lawsuit against Remington. That's the, the key lawsuit here. They make the Bushmaster uh, that was used. Um, I hope I have that right because I'm, I'm going to get emails otherwise. I know there were lawsuits against Remington anyway. So yeah, at the federal level, there was a carve-out, uh, a legislative carve-out uh, for uh, gun manufacturers so that simply they're simply not um, held accountable uh, under conventional liability laws, uh, which is sort of mind-boggling when you think about it. But um, but this suit has made enough progress into the courts that it looks as though – I think it's Josh Koskoff, the same lawyer who's, uh, who handled this case we're talking about right now. It looks as though they may they, – there may be some terrain to explore here, uh, even given the existence of that carve-out. So it's a case worth watching to see because the other part of this is you know that it, it also depends a lot on how that gun gets defined because <laughs> I spent a lot of the morning geeking out on machine gun laws in, in uh, both at the state and federal levels. And they're a little bit more complicated. Uh, some question about whether you could call this a machine gun. It's pretty clearly more of a semi, semi-automatic. But I, I don't know. There might be some room for, to do something here. I mean, the court, the courts have held that the misuse of of a product is is not a li- necessarily a liability issue, and that's really you know with a firearm, it's not you know you're not talking about defective product. You're talking about the basis for the existence of an industry, and if there's a major liability finding in a case like this, um, you know you're going to find the gun industry badly in need of liability insurance and you're going to see the insurance industry looking at 30,000 plus gun deaths a year and saying, thank you, no, we'll, you know, your business is not wanted here. But that's the reason for the carve-out, right? This isn't right. a hoverboard that catches fire. This exactly. is a gun that kills people when it works, the way it's supposed to work. Now, of course, there's one more story in this week's news connected to all this and, and again, in as small a way as possible, another small victory, it seems, for some of the uh, the families of the victims in the Connecticut Mirror's viewpoint section, the parents of one of the victims, six-year-old Noah Posner, wrote about conspiracy theorists, people who are actively saying that the Sandy Hook shootings just didn't happen. Last week, Florida Atlantic University moved to fire Professor James Tracy, who'd become known for denying that the school shooting actually happened. Uh, again, Susan, this is a, a in many ways a very, very small victory, but it does show that there's some movement in public consciousness about the the existence of people who are actively saying, including on college campuses, that this terrible thing that happened didn't happen. Yeah, and there's there's a – I think they're trying to frame this as a debate about academic freedom and, you know, he can say what he wants to say. But there is a line and this is, this is what the university seems to be saying is that, no, there's, there's a line here that he crossed. I mean this, this went beyond just saying things online. I mean he was contacting the family. He was demanding that they like dig up their son to prove that he was actually dead. I mean just awful, awful, awful stuff. You know, there's, there's a whole area of scholarship about deniers, deniers of the Holocaust, deniers of 9-11, deniers of Sandy Hook. 
deny, you know, JFK assassination. And some of the academics, and yes, folks, there are other academics who are involved in this area. They tend to be deniers across the board. Um, you know, there's a retired University of Minnesota professor uh, named Jim Fetzer. There's this James Tracy at Florida Atlantic. Um, and if you if you read their work, um, what you find is. You know, the the consistent theme is seizing on on seeming little small inconsistencies and saying, aha. But the the really weird thing about these guys, when you flip it around on them and point to huge inconsistencies, both lapses in basic logic as well as the facts, they completely shut down. And these are academics. Now, in the case of Professor Tracy at Florida Atlantic, the thing that was unusual here is, you know, you, you can say it's amusing to some degree to have people debate the melting point of steel and how jet fuel um, could or, or couldn't have, have, you know, have, have resulted in the collapse of the World Trade Center. Um, this was a direct engagement with parents of a dead boy. And to believe, again, this is a professor who teaches communication. One of his courses is the culture of conspiracies. Um, but to read what he writes, it, you know, I think you can attack it as far as the issue of tenure, you know, on, on a lack of academic rigor, of just pure meanness and cruelty. And that's where I think th- this guy crossed the line and the Posners, Lenny and, and Veronique Posner, engaged, whereas most, most of the uh, victims' families just said, we're, we're ignore, ignore these fools. Yeah, and, and fools is, is probably the nicest word we can use. Colin? Well, so first of all, um, one thing that you asked in uh, the emails preceding today's show is like, how is this particular thing still alive? And one reason it's still alive is, as Paz has suggested, it connects to a larger whole. So you can plug it right into Alex Jones's uh, conspiracy site. Uh, you can plug it. All you have to do is Google the f- phrase false flag, and you can see all the other kind of parallel conspiracies that come up like this. And then they have their own vocabulary. For example, some of the parents in Newtown are, have been described uh, by the term crisis actors. They believe that they're actually actors you can hire to uh, portray bereaved parents in situations like this. Um, and you know what? It's bigger than people want it to b- want it to be. Bigger. There are more people like this than we than we want to believe exists. When you get to 9/11, the percentage of people who don't believe some part of the official government account of 9/11 in polling is really kind of startling. Uh, how big that is. Um, Some of the blame, a tiny, tiny portion of the blame does rest with Connecticut. To this day, the character – the response – uh, by the state government and by even the local police on on compiling a persuasive after action report it 's been characterized by delays by stonewalling and by i mean if you look at comparable things whether it 's the Boston bombings, which were much more complicated, had a lot more you know so called moving parts to them or or Aurora or Virginia Tech, typically what happens is an outside party is hired there are companies that do this an independent party is uh, hired to compile an after-action report that's comprehensive and timely. And, you know, we just – the press has fought all these battles to get basic kinds of 
of information. If you remember the Sedensky report issued by uh, one of the state's attorneys, didn't even conclude the names of the children. If you want to feed the fires of these idiots out there, put out an official report on the shooting that omits the names of the children. And put, put it out a year later. Yeah, put it out a year don't later. let anybody see the crime scene photos. And don't let anybody see any of the information that's necessary to actually be able to make the case that here is indeed what happened so that we're dealing with a real life flesh and blood issue and people. And that's that's honestly, Colin, what we were all fighting about. And probably a lot of our listeners were up, upset that we were you know, going to the mat so hard for a full year saying we need information like this in the absence of information. Horrifying trolls like this gentleman in Florida come out of the woodwork, and that's the problem. That's why we need the information. Now, having said that, and we should also say at the local level, the Newtown study was done by the Connecticut Police Chiefs Association. I believe it did not even include recommendations for change. It seemed kind of cursory. Um, having said all that, I mean, the 9-11 Commission, although it had its flaws, did a very complete report of all this, in, in, given how gigantic that was, a pretty timely fashion. And it didn't really stop this stuff. So uh, on the one hand, yeah, I think the more sunlight you put on this, the better. And, but, I mean, it, it's not as though it makes it, goes, it makes it go away. It doesn't. No, it definitely doesn't. And, it, and, you know, people like Donald Trump are really kind of fanning the flames of this. His uh, statement that Muslims were celebrating in New Jersey, they're celebrating 9-11, which is completely false. His statement that that was true and his, his holding on to that with both hands, it encourages this kind of thinking. It, it enables it because here's somebody who's really high profile talking about one of those branches of these conspiracies. And your uh, Paz is right that the uh, if you believe in one conspiracy, you believe in a lot of them. That's a great point. I mean his – I hadn't really thought about it that way, Susan, but it's a great point that – Trump's rejection of documentary evidence and the degree he's to which he's willing to get a lot of other people to go along with him is it will contribute to to this kind of thinking. We, Trump Trump's yeah. been a guest on the Alex Jones show. Yeah, you know. Well, we we may have a, a short bit of time to talk about Donald Trump in the next segment, but there's a lot more to talk about, including the selfie heard around at least Connecticut. We're talking with Mark Pazniokas from the Connecticut Mirror, Susan Bigelow from CTNewsJunkie.com, and Colin McEnroe, the host of the Colin McEnroe Show here on WMPR. It's the wheelhouse on where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today it's The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. We're talking in The Wheelhouse today with Susan Bigelow, a columnist for ctnewsjunkie.com, Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror, and our own Colin McEnroe, who hosts The Colin McEnroe Show, heard each weekday at 1 o'clock. What's on your show today, Colin? Uh, it's a show about what we call techno-unemployment. Somewhere out there right now, they're uh, making a robot, uh, Mark Pazniokas robot, uh, that will be able to... Uh, and it will be actually uh, programmed to withstand boredom better than any human being could be so that it can sit in the program review and investigations committee meeting or any other legislative hearing uh, and never, ever, ever want to just keel over and die. Um, so, But the question is, what will Mark do? What will Paz do after the robot comes? Will he have some other really much more fascinating job or will he sit in a tree and learn to play the flute? We'll find out. We have the FANF 990 model yeah, already. Right, right. I know. Well, for next Christmas, uh, boys and girls, it's PazBot. It's yeah. coming to your Christmas tree. Uh, the Hartford Current reported on a story about a selfie and diversity in Hartford schools. During a training session back in September, school board member Shelley Best 
took a selfie uh, with white educators, including teacher Heather Zatola, in the background. Now, Best was trying to make the point that there are a lot of people in the room who don't look like the communities they teach. It got a lot, and I mean a lot of comments on the Currents page and a lot on Facebook, and it prompted this reaction from the current editorial board. This is what they wrote. Ms. Best's post violated the cardinal rule of consensus building. Don't alienate your allies. Neither did she advance the, the conversation by focusing on Ms. Zatola uh, and others solely based on the color of their skin. Colin, what do you make of all this? Too, too, too much a talk about a selfie? Um, yeah, we used to have an editor at The Current. Uh, I don't know if Paz will know which one this was, <laughs> who would occasionally complain of too much overkill. Uh, so um, this is too, this, I, thought, I thought the story was too much overkill. I mean, when I first saw the story, I thought, wow, it's leading the paper. It's basically a story about hurt feelings. It's a story about how you do something kind of simple and, and that maybe would be a little bit more routine in normal life. You put it on social media and just a whole bunch of things happen and, and it gets a lot worse and everybody winds up getting a lot more hurt by it than you ever could have imagined. You get hurt by it. You, in this case, is Shelley Best. Uh, the other person gets hurt by it, Heather Zatola. But, I mean, and then, of course, then you have to cover all the, you have to write editorials about it and everything. But I, on the other hand, this story does illustrate a whole bunch of things, including how digital life works these days and how these things can happen. It, it brought to the surface a bunch of, like, I was not... Familiar, familiar with the term white fragility, but apparently it's it's around, it's out there. You know those terms. I never heard, heard about white fragility before. I, I will just very quickly say that, you know, I think Reverend Best has thought better of all this. Um, and, and obviously, it wasn't a great way to make a point. You don't want to use people as means instead of ends. You don't want to use people as props to make your point. You're on the Board of Education. You probably have better ways of addressing what we all agree is an interesting and important and potentially serious question, Uh, having a diverse stock of teachers in in an environment uh, where the student population is very diverse. Uh, But you're on the Board of Education, so you should be able to do something other than take a selfie. Uh, You know, you should be able to enact meaningful change without sort of – this is kind of jerky behavior, I think. A couple of thoughts. I mean, it was colossal. I thought it was colossally stupid behavior on Reverend Best part. You are one of the bosses. If if you think there's an issue, and there is an issue as far as the lack of recruitment of of minority teachers, you are in a position to do something about it. Um, it would have been completely appropriate for her to come out of a meeting she attended where she observed that it was mainly white staff to go to the next school board meeting and say, folks, you know, I have a thought. You know, we were we had this wonderful discussion about the achievement gap, and it was basically a bunch of white people, and, and we need to engage on this. That would have been, uh, you know, that would have been the A move, instead of taking a selfie in which, if any, you know, people have seen it. I mean, it was a it was a beautifully composed <laughs> photograph. She looked she looked very angry, but she's using using uh, a white teacher as a prop. Now you're the boss, and in, in in some ways, in charge of hiring and. I don't blame the teacher for reacting the way she did. By the way, she happened to pick on the teacher who was, I guess, the Teacher Teacher. of the Year nominee. Um, But, you know, if if I'm used as an illustration for a problem by my boss, I'm going to be a little ticked off. Um, And by the way, I thought Vanessa De La Torre's story in The Current um, was a very thoughtful exploration of it because there is a lot of stuff here. Anytime race 
is part of the issue. It's a landmine. So I, I applaud the current for at least taking a run at it. Um, okay. Well, well, Susan, here's something. And I've been having a lot of these conversations recently. I just uh, hosted a panel about race and free speech down at Connecticut College. And then I recently had on um, the woman who disrupted a Connecticut forum about race by standing up and, and saying that there are no members of the Black Lives Matter movement on the stage. And so therefore, people should think uh, about this a little bit more. One of the things that I hear, I think in Ms. Best's uh, tweet, and also in uh, a series of commentaries that I've heard afterward is a lot of a lot of African-Americans are kind of sick and tired of people who aren't them telling them how they can protest, how they can make a point. What is jerky behavior and what's not jerky behavior? Even the current saying, don't alienate your allies. Well, this is something that I, I raised with uh, Jenny Woods, who was on the, on the program the other day. And, and she said, well, look, I mean, yes, we want to have allies, but we want to use those allies sometimes to make the point that people really aren't listening right here. Uh, given all that, I mean, what do you see in this? I see, I see a bunch of things. I mean, first off, let's, let's talk about the point about white fragility and um, the, uh, the whole notion of alienating allies and that there are acceptable ways to protest um, systemic injustices. This is something that oppressed groups have always heard, that no, there, has, there is a very specific way that you are supposed to uh, protest something that is wrong. And it's supposed to be, you know, very calm and well thought out. And if you if you offend anybody, you get a, you get a lot of flack for it. It's interesting that the story here is uh, the the feelings of the teacher instead of the fact that uh, Hartford School's uh, faculty are overwhelmingly white, which is something that's been gone gone on for a long time. And that's that I think is the real story that this is not a very diverse uh, faculty. Um, but there's also some things here about sort of um, online cruelty. It seems like the, what what would what really set the teacher and I, uh, off was was the fact that a lot of uh, Reverend Best's uh, friends and commenters were were making some kind of snarky comments about about her and what she looked like, and um, which you know. Eh. But but I, and I think this is probably a much longer conversation in general, Colin. We have to wrap this up uh, about online cruelty, and it's just online cruelty is something that comes into comments. We've talked about it a million times. The internet, whether or not it's Facebook, Twitter, any type of social media comments at the end of a Hartford Current story, probably isn't the way to have the best, most productive dialogue in the whole world. Yeah, and I mean the thing about this is it's all modifiable. So one of the things that happened right away is that people started building memes, you know, that were even meaner than the original tweet. And I just wanted to say that I think Susan makes a really interesting point. On the other hand, if you put 10 African-American people around this table who are connected to this issue, I don't think that they would speak one, about, with one voice about it. I know that they don't speak with one voice about this. And there might be five of them who said, no, we really wish she had never done that. That is really not the way we want to express ourselves. In fact, we want her to be on the Board of Education pursuing systemic change, not sending out snarky Facebook posts or, or, or whatever. So it, I, it's a great point that Susan's making, but it's also – in terms of the style of protest, well, I mean, one person doesn't get to decide what the style so of protest is. A black is be. parent had sent that same tweet. I think we'd all react very differently. Mm-hmm. But this was somebody who's on the school board. And I think that's a, an element of why it spun out the way it did. Okay, so we heard this week that the Hartford Stadium Authority chairman, uh, I. Charles Matthews, has said that the baseball park that is being built in the downtown north neighborhood, sort of a brand new neighborhood that never existed <laughs> existed until now, uh, just north of of I eighty four, that this ballpark to uh, host the Hartford Yard Goats, may not be ready until late spring. Uh, Developer Bob Landino disagrees with Matthews on this point. There's going 
going to be a, a significant amount of the building that will not be complete in April, but we fully expect it will be able to be occupied by fans and baseball will be able to be viewed by the public. Colin, we don't have a whole lot of time to talk about this. I was just down there by the ballpark the other day. It didn't look like a ballpark that was going to be ready to be completed on opening day in April. No, I'm sort of picturing, you know, we were all growing up, we'd have, like, pick up baseball games. We'd say, okay, the Frisbee over there is going to be second base, you know, and you see the fire hydrant there. You have to touch that when it's third, third base. And I hope it's not that bad. I will say that from the beginning, I sort of thought it would be a bigger story if this were on schedule. I mean, it just seems like, I mean, we all know that public construction projects are a big lift, that cost overruns are more the rule than the exception, that delays are more the rule than the exception. And there just wasn't any fat, either financially or chronologically, built into this. It was kind of like, wow, you're starting it now, and if everything works out perfectly, you're going to be ready in April. And like, well, what are the chances of that? <laughs> Susan? And it seems like this this company that that is... Um that is doing the ballpark. They they sort of been sloppy in a lot of ways. I mean, they got a lot of stuff stolen from their site. Um, they seemed like they had a lot of problems. But it's interesting that the the uh, stadium in New Britain, which was built in 1996, that actually was built in a year, and that that was done on time. So it can be done. It's just not being done here. But it was also built in a place that there wasn't a whole lot else around it, except for some other ballparks, as opposed to building one right in the downtown of a of a city. And they. They had the old ballpark right next door, so there was no pressure on the completion. This is a little different. They have to deliver a playable field sometime in mid-April. But uh, if you remember going to uh, games at the old Beehive Field, eh, there was a little bit of pressure. You probably wanted to get out of the ballpark, but still, I, I, I take your point. You know, as a matter of fact, we have a call coming in from Bob Landino, uh, who is manager of Dono Hartford LLC and uh, uh, the builder of this ballpark who we just heard on tape. Uh, Bob, uh, thanks for calling in. I appreciate it. No problem. Good morning, John. Uh, good morning. So where are we with the stadium construction? Are we behind schedule? So we are planning to play baseball on or about the, you know, the, the time frame of, of the first week of April. And if you look at the stadium from the exterior, it does. I agree that it does look like it's a stretch to complete, and it certainly is aggressive. And I agree with the comment that both the chronological and budget constraints on this left little room for slack. But if you look at the inside of the stadium, and we could certainly forward a picture, you'd see that it's further along than most people think. Um, the, the issue is not finishing the stadium. The issue is simply um, that the architecture was uh, completed in late spring, uh, and we tried to value engineer that architecture, which was entirely directed by the city of Hartford. Uh, they did not assign the architect to us until mid-June, and by then they made it contractually clear that the design was complete. We tried from mid-June to, to the fall to, to bring it back into budget because there were things that were added to the stadium that were very significant that were not a part of the original design that we estimated. And so just like when you build a house and you get a preliminary set of plans from an architect and you get a budget from a contractor and then during the course of finishing the design you add bathrooms or you add a finished basement or you add things to the house, those things become additional costs, and, and the owner, in this case the city of Hartford, has to reconcile that. And, so. and, and I think the only difference for a lot of people would be that if the work on your house isn't done, you can stay at the Radisson down the street. But if the ballpark yeah. isn't done, as Colin said, I don't know where you're going to play. I mean, if we're pushing now to April and we're hopeful that we'll be starting in or around the time, I mean, does opening day uh, of the Hartford ballpark in April happen with a team playing on a field and fans in those stands? Yeah, I, I believe it does, and I believe, um, presuming that the issue of the budget difference is not reconciled expeditiously, which I think is a fair assumption, our goal is to build a stadium that fans can come and enjoy 
uh, with many of the features that were added uh, to not be completed until such time as that funding is in place. So it will not be a complete stadium, but our goal is to complete it in April. What we will propose uh, in the next day or two is that if it's delayed three or four weeks to the first or second week of May, we could save a significant amount of money on winter conditions, although with this winter, maybe that won't even be necessary. <laughs> you... But, uh, you know, but, uh, but assuming it does have, you know, there is significant winter issues in, in February and possibly in March, we could save money and, and try to reduce that deficit by delaying the opening uh, up by 30 days or so and working with the team to develop an away schedule for that period of time. But well, I, certainly I, I, yeah. in that time frame, certainly it will be playable. I, and Bob, thank you so much for calling in. Bob Landino uh, building this Hartford ballpark in, in downtown North. Uh, thank you very much. He is catching maybe the best winter of all time if they want to get this <laughs> they want to get this ballpark done. Temperatures in the 60s and 70s over the course of the next couple of days. Look, maybe something else getting built in Hartford uh, north of downtown. Uh, the Mohegans and Pequots teaming up in hopes of building a third casino along the I-91 corridor somewhere north of Hartford. A lot of towns are under consideration. Now, Colin, we're talking about near the Xfinity Center in the North Meadows. Yes, maybe a Hartford casino? Yeah, my theory about these two related stories is that it's part of the Grinch's plan to ruin the Bronin family's Christmas. So uh, Luke Bronin is about to come into office, and every day he picks up the vapor. Well, I'm sure he finds that out before the vapor comes, but he goes, what? The ballpark has these problems? And and, and what? There's going to casino? I don't know anything about a casino. I don't want a casino. So... And, and the fact that he doesn't want a casino probably means it's like a non-starter once he gets in there. I mean, I don't know how far this can, could go with a mayor who's really pretty solidly on record as opposing it. But, um, you know, I mean, I, I, on the other hand, I mean, I sort of everybody's sort of jumping in the game here. Um, I, I will say that if you're going to put a casino somewhere and you're worried about it damaging you know, the environment. Well, I mean, the North Meadows is already kind of Potterville anyway, right? It's like all these sex clubs and things like that. There's so. car dealers, there's sex clubs, and there's a big landfill right across the highway across from a pass. Sounds like a nice place to put a casino. <laughs> Urban casinos have other have issues that more rural casinos don't. And Hartford went through this debate when Carrie Saxon Perry was, right. was mayor. Steve Wynn was here. Steve in the Wynn city. was here. And he was going to he was going to come here right here in River City and save things. And I, I believe every uh, corporate leader and back then, I'll grant you, there were more um, spoke with one voice that this was not what they wanted to see in Hartford. Yeah, yeah. speaking with one voice, maybe back then, but Susan, it's a different time. Uh, there's different economic conditions, and the state seems to be behind this notion that a casino should be built somewhere in order to mm. stave off the hordes who are going up north to Springfield, right? No, uh, sure, they, that's what they think, that lots of people are going to go to Springfield. Springfield certainly thinks and hopes so. Um, how true that is, who knows? Springfield scaled back their plans. It looks like the gaming industry is in a lot of trouble. So they could build it, but is anyone going to go? Well, yeah, the Springfield uh, Casino right now is kind of a storefront, I think, with a little uh, uh, shingle outside. Paz, what were you going to say? And I'm not sure the state's really behind this push for a casino here. It, 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 it really fell flat in the legislature this year. They came up with this you know, symbolic process where they told the tribes, go out and see if you can find a – a town that's willing to host a casino and then come back. And they have yet to address any of the major legal issues that the attorney general's office has raised. So I wouldn't say that the state is really behind this. No, and I'd agree with that. That When we were talking with the governor uh, two weeks ago, he he didn't seem all that thrilled about the idea either. He said that no town that doesn't want a casino should actually have one. Uh, so I don't know. 
I'm really disappointed in both of you. Don't you realize this is about jobs? Don't you realize <laughs> that this is about two uh, companies, these casino operators? They care about jobs. You act as though they're just trying to protect their handle. And, Sorry. And, and of course, the cynicism in this room really makes me sick. <laughs> and let me play the role of Danny Har and point out that it's going to take a lot more than just one. Statement. I know yeah. <laughs> that people in Connecticut can actually go to Springfield and get those casino jobs. So if that's all you're worried about is jobs. You should applaud a big casino in they're Springfield. Gonna ho- they're going to hop on that high-speed train that we're building, and they're going to go right up there and work in, in, in Springfield. We're talking with Mark Pazniok, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror, Susan Bigelow, columnist for ctnewsjunkie.com, and Colin McEnroe, the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WMPR. If you're a state worker and you're listening, just remember, put this on your calendar. Tomorrow's Christmas Eve, but don't think you're getting out to shop at 3 o'clock. It's time to stay at work tomorrow. We'll be talking about that and also airing some grievances coming up next where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up tomorrow, it's been 22 years since The New York Times lost Jeffrey Schmaltz, a fearless journalist who pushed the boundaries of AIDS reporting in 20th century America. We're going to revisit a conversation we had with one of the producers of a new radio documentary. It honors his work uh, covering the AIDS epidemic. I hope you can join us for this conversation tomorrow on Where We Live. Today in the program, it's The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. Colin McEnroe, the host of The Colin McEnroe Show, is here. Mark Pazdiokas from the Connecticut Mirror. Susan Bigelow from ctnewsjunkie.com. Before we get to the Festivus airing of grievances, it's Christmas Eve tomorrow. Not uncommon for people working the day to maybe kick off a little bit early, go do some Christmas shopping. State employees are being told to work a, a full day. Melody Curry, Commissioner of Administrative Services, uh, sent an email to state employees in an interview with The Current, she said, one gentleman has emailed me twice. He's upset that I sent out this memo. He's not happy that I did this. I think I'm Grinch Curry. What do you, th- what do you think, Paz? I mean, everyone kicks off early. I mean, should we be telling state workers, you know, you, you can't leave until the workday is done? Most state employees have banked a lot of time. They get personal days. There's, I believe it's 18 paid state holidays. So if you want to take off on Christmas Eve, then you know what? Reach into that bank and Spend one of your personal days. Mark Grinch Neokas. What do you I'm think? I'm going to the DMV at three thirty tomorrow and get my <laughs> oh, going to license the DMV. Renewed. You won't get out you of until there until after Christmas. I used to work in retail. Um, I used to work at J.C. Penney, and and I know that the state employees now will know who they are because they'll be the ones who come in at six o'clock p.m. <laughs> on Christmas Eve. They stagger in, look at the empty shelves, and go, "I need a sweater." That's who they're going to be. So at least we'll know who they are. And, and those are the people that the retail employees just hate because they're oh, trying to get out of there too. Colin. Yeah. So it's possible that uh, in between now and tomorrow, like tonight, that uh, Governor Malloy may be visited by the ghosts of Ella Grasso, Bill O'Neill, and, uh, and Tom Meskel, <laughs> who will get him to see things in a different way. Uh, however, I, I will say that obviously this is, there's a little bit of window dressing here, right? And so some of this is like the state took a kind of a bad publicity hit, former colleague of uh, Paz's and mine, uh, Joe Nunes, writing about this uh, terrible experience that his daughter had trying to deal with the DMV. Yes. And, you know, and uh, I mean... There's some. I don't think I would personally ever try to resolve my problems with the DMV by phone. I think that was a bad strategy. But whether it was a fair article or not, or whatever, it doesn't make any difference. It was like it just tapped into this whole. You know, it hit it hit a tripwire of, of civilian discontent about this. So you know, in a way, this is sort of um, a little bit of pushing back against that. It's kind of like, oh no, no, we are very, we take this stuff very seriously. In fact, you're gonna, you know. Start drinking at 4 o'clock on Christmas Eve, but our employees will still be there. 
not to say that some of them. It might be interesting to go to DMV and see what your license looks like. You know, <laughs> people have been hitting the eggnog you in the back the room. Eggnog pretty hard. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, as as we wrap up this hour on this uh, day, two days before Christmas, it's a time to officially do this. The tradition of Festivus begins. With the airing of grievances. Yes, indeed. It's, it's the first time I think we've ever held a wheelhouse on Festivus. And Mark Pesnikos, I'll start with you. I mean, you're pretty good at airing some of your grievances here on the program. I mean, what are some grievances that you have to air about 2015? You know, one of them, and it, it comes to me lately, is is uh, the, the erosion of, of the importance of transparency in public life, in mm. media life. Um, if Sheldon Adelson wishes to become the Rupert Murdoch of Nevada and buy a newspaper, then God love him. You, got, you know, put your money down, buy your paper, but own it, man. Um, we have a publisher in Connecticut named Michael Schroeder of the New Britain Herald, who, whose name appeared somehow on that LLC agreement to purchase that paper. And Mr. Schroeder, despite being in the news business, doesn't seem to be willing to explain at all his role, nor is he willing to explain how, uh, you know, a hit piece that uh, that the Adelson family seemed to commission, they tried to get reporters out there to to put together an investigation of, of judges who were deemed unfriendly to some Adelson business interest, and how that piece ran in the New Britain Herald under the byline of a person that Matt Kaufman, uh, an investigative reporter at the Hartford Current, has been unable to authenticate his existence. And Mr. Schroeder basically said, it's no one's business. So anyway, that's my big peeve <laughs> this week. I don't know if it covers the whole year. But that's that's a pretty good year in grievance, I have yeah. to say. And, and and probably something we can, we could devote a little bit more time to. How about you, Susan? Any grievances to air? Oh, geez, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as, as we gather around the Festivus poll, yeah, yeah. let us let us air our grievances. Um, my my big grievance this whole year has been sort of people who are constantly naysayers about everything in Connecticut, and this is not just a Connecticut phenomenon, but it seems like it's really bad here that there. Whenever we try to do something in Connecticut that might make our lives a little bit better. Uh, there's always going to be lots and lots and lots of people who come out of the woodwork and say, no, we can't do that. It's not going to work here. And you know, I'm thinking about the busway specifically because there's so much negativity about that. But there's a ton of other examples. Uh, and it all just has to go back to our, our state's sort of self-esteem issues where we don't believe that we can do anything. I'd like to see a little less of that. A little less of that. And I think that that's a very good one. Colin, how about you? First of all, I love seasons. And I I think, you know, the CBIA in particular, which really should – Connecticut Business and Industry Association, which should be promoting the idea that Connecticut is a great place to do business, has spent quite a bit of its time in the past 12 months saying the exact opposite thing <laughs> to me, which is something you – know, it's like sort of, you know, commerce high treason or something. I mean, you should be – well, anyway. I agree. Second that emotion. Um, I, I think one of my grievances has been that uh, the inability of college students, including students at my alma mater down in New Haven, to prioritize their concerns. And, and, and so there are some real concerns on college campuses right now, and they actually dovetail pretty quick, pretty closely with the Shelley Best, Heather Zatola story, that college students would like to have a more diverse environment. They'd like to have more diverse hiring of professors. They'd like to have more professors that are representative of different uh, minority groups, which is a great issue. 
for some reason or other, they're talking about Halloween costumes. Uh, at Oberlin right now, they are talking about cafeteria food, suggesting that certain kinds of banh mi sandwiches and General Tso's chicken are culturally insensitive. <laughs> <laughs> and so, look, you're college students. You're supposed to be able to, you know, put a few thoughts and words together. Uh, you're supposed to be able to explain what you're really concerned about. And every time they bring up something stupid, and they've brought up a lot of really stupid things, and people say, well, you're being stupid. They say, well, that's not really what we're concerned about. We're concerned about these other things. Well, good. Bring up those other things, all right? <laughs> learn, <laughs> learn to use words to explain what your actual problems are. Okay, so here's here's one of my, my grievances, and, and we only just have a, a moment or so left, but I, I'd like to have everyone have everyone weigh in on this. You know, we've actually talked on this program before because we are, in essence, talking about state government and and also local governments. And sometimes they are a bit dysfunctional, let's just say. It's It seems as though what we're trying to do is tear down this institution or these institutions. And as you say, uh, Susan, sometimes it's, it's people, you know, not necessarily uh, thinking the best of our state. One thing I will say is the tone of the conversation, the national conversation I've heard this year, has just been more divisive and more angry and more ramped up than I've ever heard it before. And uh, for whatever role I play in that, hopefully in 2016, I'd, I'd like to step back a little bit. I just, I guess I'll just ask Susan, where's the love? I mean, <laughs> where can we just maybe feel a little bit more empathy toward people before we open up our mouths and start to say some of the things that I, I hear people saying today? Wouldn't that be nice if we could be just a little kinder? And that's that's one of the things I want to do myself in the new year is just be a little little kinder, a little more thoughtful. It seems like we are really, really quick to think the worst, especially, I think, in a time where things are so uncertain, we are falling back on thinking the worst about everybody and being very cruel. I think this is the moment to apologize to uh, Al Gore for making fun of him for sighing at a debate and to apologize to the first President Bush for glancing at his watch and how those became scandals which now seem quaint. Uh, quaint, certainly, with everything else happening. Colin? I'll give some love to um, a Republican, uh, Lynn Fasano. You know, Lynn Fasano really, uh, I think, has far exceeded my expectations for him as the minority leader uh, in the Senate. I think he, he really has been kind of what we hope for is he, he is the loyal opposition. It's his job to criticize uh, a lot of Democratic proposals, but it's also his job to seek consensus whenever possible. I'm, I'm not saying he's perfect at it or anything, but I actually think he's done a remarkably good job at consensus seeking uh, with, uh, with some of the Democrats. And, you know, if there's a role for the incredibly beleaguered minority to play, he's playing it pretty well. A little bit of love there from Colin. I have great love for the people who put together our program, like Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives, Kion Wolf, Heather Brandon, and our executive producer, Katie Talarski, our interns, Zachary LaSala and Nate Gagnon. And of course, uh, thanks to you for listening all throughout this year. You can go to our website, wnpr.org slash where we live to continue this conversation. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. (laughs) 